in the life of this church over the last few years, we've pretty much always gone back to the inquirers class once a year for the whole church. It's just a good general practice for remembering our identity, who we are and what we're doing. You know, a lot of businesses start out their year with some kind of strategic planning. And the idea of that is you get the team focused in pulling in the same direction and remembering what's most important and why we're doing what we're doing. And I, I think our session has felt it shouldn't necessarily be any different for a church. There are a lot of things that a group of Christians could be doing together weekly and over the course of a year. But there are some things that we must be doing. And so getting into the why, getting those firmly established, then allows us to figure out, all right, what are we going to do with the rest of it, with the rest of the time and energy and money and resources? What of the things that we can do, which ones are most aligned with what we must do? And so this class has always been a little bit of a blend of what does it mean to be a Christian church, and I'll go into more detail of the other questions we'll answer there, but also why this church? There's a lot of churches in Atlanta. Why does this one exist? And why would you join this church or why would you stay in this church compared with any of the other churches that might be closer to you, that might be uh, more consistent with the tradition in which you grew up? There's lots of reasons why uh, we might be a part of a church. And so because this class is sort of those two things, the session talked about Austin and I team teaching this class, because while Austin is absolutely equally capable in Christian church, Protestant church, Reformed church, the, the essentials from scripture about our church, and, and we'll teach those together. I might have a little bit more experience in why this church and how this church came to be and, and what is the intentional direction and ethos of this church that the session has established from the beginning? And then what are the things that we always need to be reevaluating and thinking about? Is this core to our identity scripturally or is this just something we like? And then that's a really healthy and important exercise in the life of the church as the years go by. So that's what we're going to do in this class. I want to, I think people's contexts matter. So I want to talk about myself for a minute. Uh, One, I love talking about myself, so this will be fun. I I think it matters if somebody's going to talk to you about what it means to be Christian, Protestant, Reformed, Presbyterian, when somebody talks about the essentials of Scripture for the life of the church, I think it's important that you know where they're coming from. I think somebody's personal experience within the church and in the faith tells you a, can, can inform their soapboxes. What, what, we're all pendulums, right? You, you know that? We are all pendulums. We are either dragging ourselves toward what is known and most familiar to us, or we are swinging our pendulum the other way, away from something we didn't like, didn't experience, didn't, didn't want to experience again, don't want any part of. And the Christian life is the Holy Spirit sort of holding that pendulum in a narrower and narrower swing pattern so that you can get more and more aligned 
with Christ and not just wildly waving at Christ as you pass him by on your next massive swing. Right? Does that, that analogy make sense? I think we've all experienced that in at least some aspects of the Christian life. I grew up in a Christian home. I have never known a day when I didn't know the love of Christ. I did not have some conversion experience. I did not, as a, as an adult, I could not tell you when I was converted because I've never known a day that I didn't consider myself to be in the love of Christ. Um, so when I talk and I did not grow up Presbyterian or reformed as we'll talk about in a minute. So when I think about what it means to be a Christian, and I don't, this is not a right or a wrong. This is, I want you to know where I'm coming from when I talk. I don't think of it in terms of dichotomies. I used to be a certain way. I know that ontologically, big picture, spiritually, I know I was dead in my sins and trespasses, utterly without hope except for Christ. I know that to be true. I did not experience that on the outside of the womb in a meaningful and memorable way. And so when I talk about the Christian life, you'll hear me talk about this constant progression of always trying to move more and more toward Christ at, at, at from, from the first day that you had the conscience experience of your own sin and, and needing to repent of that and moving toward Christ until my dying breath, I hope that I am still moving toward Christ. So sometimes you'll hear me talk in some ways. That if you had a different experience, if you were converted as an adult or as a teenager, it'll just sound a little different and that's okay. Both are good. God works through both of them. I just want you to know where I'm coming from. Doctrinally, I grew up in Protestant churches and we'll talk about those terms and what those uh, definitions and boundaries are over time. I grew up first in Southern Baptist churches when I was really little. And then when the worship wars hit, some of you younger folks may not even know what the worship wars were, but for a while, there was a time where churches were splitting over whether or not they were going to continue to sing the traditional hymns of the church that had always been sung, or whether they were going to sing more modern contemporary Christian music that was being played on the radio. And people handled that disagreement in a wide variety of ways across the spectrum of good, bad, sinful, not appropriate, not all sorts of things. But it split a lot of churches, especially in the South sort of Southern Baptist world. And so I was little in a Southern Baptist church. But when the worship wars came, my parents went with the rock and rollers. And so we... Um, first it was just a non-denominational community church, and then it became a uh, Pentecostal church. And so I grew up in the very charismatic signs and gifts, running up and down the aisle, slain in the spirit type of church. That is my background. I was also a musician. And because I grew up in a rock and roll church as a musician, I played a lot of music and ended up playing a lot of music for church and leading a lot of those services as a very young person. Because uh, it was funny, our pianist in the church that I spent the most time in growing up, she was a wonderful woman. She's one of my piano teachers along the way. Uh, but she was also in her 60s. And she very quickly realized that when you're in your 60s and you're in a charismatic church that is going to have music from 9 a.m. to 11, preaching from 11 to 12, and music from 12 until. 
dot, dot, dot. She didn't really want to be a part of that 12 until she was kind of done for the day. So we'd get a song or two into the 12 until, and starting about when I was eight years old, she would motion me up to the stage next to her and sit down on the bench. We'd play a couple together. And then at some point I'd look over and she would be gone and have gone home because that's just enough. Uh, so that's the context in which I grew up. I grew up in going to Christian youth camps. I grew up in a very, um, emotionally charged religious environment. Now, why am I telling you that? Well, because I just said what I said about pendulums. So when you grow up in an environment where you see people's emotions manipulated in the name of scripture, where's your pendulum going to swing? Emotions bad. Emotions should have nothing to do with Christianity. There should be a really intellectual, logical, reasonable approach to Christianity that transcends emotions. You see what I just did with my pendulum? Way back the other way. I waved at Jesus when I passed, really. I did. But now I'm way over here. Uh, In college, I had the great experience. A, A Bible professor who's with the Lord now was the first time as a freshman we were all required at Erskine to take an Old Testament survey class. And I remember sitting in that Old, Old Testament survey class and the professor was teaching on Genesis 1 through 3. He spent a lot of weeks in Genesis 1 through 3. And I remember there actually thinking as a you know, college student, a relatively intelligent, educated person, I had no idea someone this smart could spend their life studying the Bible. That's what I thought about that professor. I had never in my life imagined that someone that brilliant would apply that brilliance to scripture. And so then that just totally changed my, wow, wow, this, there's something here. I've got to dig more deeply into the scriptures. I never doubted or ran away from, um, I, I was not a wild liver. I, uh, well, I have a liver. I did not, I was never a, a rebellious, like externally rebellious partier teenager. Um, spiritually, that's because of the Holy Spirit. Practically, it's because I'm a control freak and I don't like doing anything where I don't have control over myself and as much as I can, my surroundings. Uh, so that eliminated most drugs and, and excessive alcohol. Um, but I had this experience of there's more here to scripture than I ever knew. And so this thing that I've been relying on for salvation, this thing that I have truly believed in and trusted in and relied on for the, the next life actually has a whole lot of things to say about this life. And it's more than just be a good person. And so then I really got into studying the scriptures, swung the pendulum the other way of, wow, this is a really fascinating academic endeavor in addition to saving my soul. And then by God's grace over the years, still working on it more and more, you start to come back toward that center pendulum of it's both. The essential nature of the Christian faith is a deeply emotional experience But the role of the Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit is to examine those emotions under the light of scripture and say, is this right? I want my feelings to be aligned with truth and not just aligned with whatever's happening around me in the moment. And so that's sort of my emotional, intellectual journey with the Christian faith there. Now, my father is a Roman Catholic. You weren't ready for that, were you? So I grew up in a house with a charismatic Pentecostal mother and a Roman Catholic father. My dad is a Catholic to this day. 
um, my dad believes in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation alone. My father is in the kingdom, but he's in the kingdom despite his church, which we'll talk about later. And I say that to his face as well, so I don't, I don't feel so bad. Uh, I, not at the Thanksgiving table. I've just found that to be rather disruptive and rude. Uh, but he knows that I do not believe the Catholic Church is a true church, and yet I believe there can be people within the Catholic Church in the kingdom of God despite what their church teaches. Uh, which is the great news of the gospel. <laughs> you, can, uh, you, you can attain eternal life with Christ when all of those um, circumstantial things are working against you. So that's my history. That's where I'm coming from. So you'll hear me speak pretty passionately about a anti-intellectual version of the Christian faith. I'm not a fan of such a thing. You'll hear me speak pretty passionately against emotional manipulation within the Christian church and the Christian life. That's something I'm pretty passionate against. You'll hear me speak pretty passionately against Catholicism because that's something that I've studied deeply and know well and I'm pretty passionately against. Um, but those are my priors, so to speak. That's just me, full disclosure, as we go into teaching about doctrine. And I'll ask Austin to do the same thing when he teaches. Let's, let's just give you our priors. And it's okay for you to ask, do you think you're swinging the pendulum a little further on that part because of your background? I hope many times the answer will be, I see why you ask that, but no, I've actually thought through this and here's scripture. But sometimes it's, it's good to remember we're all the products of the place we came from. And that's always going to inform, if not what we believe, how we articulate what we believe. The two people can believe exactly the same thing from scripture, but the way they say it and what they emphasize might be different because of what they've been through or what they've experienced. And that's a good thing to remember and just ask for clarity along the way. Can't imagine you have any questions about my, about that, but any questions of pausing there for a moment? That's my sort of personal church background. All right. Why? So if the question of the inquirer's class is why join or stay this church? I think you actually have to back up one question before you can get to that. Because you need to first answer the question, why join any church? Why does church membership matter? Is Christianity a personal faith or a private faith? Now, we could get into deeper definitions and probably spend this a lot of ways, but I'll tell you for my purposes, Christianity is a personal faith. It is not a private faith. It is personal in that you have a personal relationship with the God of the universe through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be a deeply personal relationship. But the word private, at least the way I'm going to use it for, for this purpose, is, is a word that says that's between me and God. Pr private is something that we're, we're not going to share with other people. We're not going to show to other people. We're not going to allow other people to hold up to scrutiny. We're, we're not going to invite other people into. It's private. And I don't see many examples in scripture of that kind of faith. 
I see Christianity being a personal faith that is then immediately and always connected to others. It's, it's opened. It's covenantal. Go back to the beginning. God interacts with Adam alone just long enough to say what? It's not good for you to be alone. And then from that point forward, God operates covenantally with groups of people, with families, with Israel, with tribes within Israel, within groups of elders, with apostles, with disciples, with churches through elders. You see Jesus and uh, as God works with his people through Christ, you see community, <laughs> you see groups. You don't see an individual saying, I'm going to keep my Christianity over here and the rest of you stay out of it because it's private. This is not what scripture shows. Scripture teaches that we live in that community and that the community that has Christ as its center is what we call the church. The church is the community of people with Christ at its center. You can be a community around a lot of different things. I say that in church membership, sort of the teaching before new members take vows, right? I say, why would we join all sorts of clubs and associations? We gather ourselves around lots of different things. We can gather ourselves around identities as fans of a particular team or participants in a particular activity. You can be in a, a ballroom dancing club. You can be in a Go Michigan National Championship group, if you would dare. <laughs> We gather ourselves into groups around a central thing. <laughs> when that central thing, if you'll excuse the language, is Christ, the group that you've gathered is the church. The word church is used at least 115 times in the New Testament. 115 times in the New Testament, the word of God is concerned to tell us something about the group of people gathered around Christ. The New Testament cares about the church. And we'll talk more in just a minute. The bonds of a community establish the security of that community. So if you're in a group and there are no rules for joining the group and there are no criteria for being a part of the group and you can leave the group whenever you want, that's fine. There's all kinds of groups in life that are that way. But would you consider that to be a particularly secure community? No, it's a revolving door. Anybody who wants to come in can come in for any reason or no reason, and they can leave at any time for any reason or no reason. No, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it wouldn't be a community that is secure, and it wouldn't be a community with a clear identity. Because if there are no, for lack of a better term, there's no rules, there's no criteria for what it means to join that community, every single person can be different in every single way that matters and have absolutely no overlap in their beliefs or what's important or their cares or concerns. And then that's a pretty diverse community. <laughs> so diverse as to not really make clear why this community gathered in the first place. The more clear the identity of a community is supposed to be, the more specific you have to be about criteria. And the more secure you want a community to be, 
the more involved you have to be in making sure those criteria are actually met. Just that would be true of any community. Um, some of us are part of a book club, and in our book club, we only have two rules. You have to make sure that you can come to half the meetings or more before you sign up. And every meeting you come to, you have to have read at least half the book. Well, if we don't enforce those, for lack of a better term, we're not going to be a book club. We're going to be a group of guys that gathers around and talks about whatever we want to talk about because nobody read the book. And we're certainly not going to talk about anything significant or intimate because it's going to be a revolving door and you never know who's going to come on a particular week and there's no security there. So the more clear you need to be about your identity and the more secure you need a community to be, the more you have to strengthen the bonds of community by being specific about some things. This is a bit countercultural, not just to the culture at large, but this is countercultural to the church at large now. It didn't used to be, but... There are lots of churches in Atlanta that have simply given up on church membership. There are large churches in Atlanta that will tell you unabashedly, we don't believe in church membership. Church membership creates too many problems and is too much work. Okay, I'm sympathetic to the work involved, uh, but that's not necessarily the criteria we should use for whether or not we do something in the church. So a new category was established, this category of regular attender. I don't need to be a church member. What's important is just that I go to church. And so I go to church regularly, and then I'm being faithful. I don't have to join a church in order to be faithful. Well, first of all, I applaud the instinct and the desire to be in church regularly. That is, in fact, important, and many people neglect that. So I, I, I'm not trying to just trash people who are regular attenders. Why do people do that? Why do people slip into the regular attender, attender model and just stay there indefinitely? I think two reasons that cover the vast majority of the cases. The first reason is they've never thought about it and the church has never made a case for why it matters. The church has never told them this is something from scripture that they ought to consider. And so why would they think about it? If the church itself isn't saying this matters, why would somebody come to that conclusion just through osmosis? Um, the church has failed to show them that church membership is a get to and not just a have to. If you approach church membership as, well, if I don't join, they're not going to let me come here anymore, which I don't think is true of any church I've ever been to. But as an obligation that you have to fulfill to be doing the right thing, you are missing out on everything I just described a minute ago. All the advantages you get of a community with a more clear purpose and mission and a community that is more secure. If you're not a church member, you miss out on those things. You don't have that bond of connectedness. And we'll talk about some of the things that means, but you don't have that. You just have another place you go where you're a regular. Well, there are lunch restaurants and bars where I go where I'm a regular. Is that all we want out of a church is to be a regular. 
or do we want to be connected in some way that is deeper, some way that is more valuable and meaningful? The second reason why sometimes people will not join a church is a little more purposeful on their part, and that is they're avoiding accountability. Uh, I don't think this is a large number of people in this category, but they have existed at every church that I have pastored or been a part of in the last couple of decades. People who want to take from the worship, want to take from the community without ever allowing the possibility that they might be told what to do. What do I mean by told what to do? Well, we'll talk about church discipline, but church discipline, the vast majority of the time we're talking about church discipline, we're talking about positive discipline, which is instruction. It's the same kind of discipline we should have in our homes. Do we have negative discipline in our homes with our children? Yes, we should. But if that is the primary means of discipline, you're going to have unhappy children. You really are. The, the primary means of discipline is positive. It's teaching. It's instructive. It's training. It's building up. And so it is in the life of the church. That within the life of the church, we could come alongside, say, hey, this thing you were talking about with work this week, I was thinking about that in light of scripture. What do you think scripture says about this? And let's just talk through that together and make a more biblical decision or become more confident. I think you are making the biblical decision, but you sound very insecure about it. And so let's work through this together so that you can gain the confidence that you're doing the right thing. Because oftentimes when you're doing the right thing in the Christian life, the immediate feedback loops are not positive. <laughs> They're not reinforcing. Hey, this is working. I should keep doing it. Maybe that's your experience. That is not necessarily mine. So people sometimes are trying to avoid accountability. They don't want to join a church because they want the freedom to leave a church anytime it no longer meets some subjective criteria or need or level of satisfaction that they have. And so why do it? What's the mildly over-the-top comparison? If we're going to make an analogy, regular attender to church member, make an analogy to home life for a minute. What's the difference between being married and living together? Why do people live together and don't get married? They want the benefits. There are some obvious benefits. But they want the freedom and the flexibility and the independence to leave whenever they want to leave. They're missing out. It's easier to see in a marriage context. They're missing out on the relational connectedness created by vows. And yeah, that's, a, that's kind of an esoteric thing. I can't nail down for you what that means. But when somebody is said, better and worse, sickness and health, richer and poor, and, and you see that acted out in them, something happens that I can't really write a research paper on. Right? There is some profound meaning there of that connectedness through vows. And on the other hand, when you see those types of vows broken, that's why it's so uh, uh, 
shocking to our conscience. That's why it's so hurtful when we see someone who is in a marriage where the vows weren't kept by the other partner because something meaningful happened there, something real in the breaking of those vows. In the church context, your vows are not just binding you to the congregation itself, but to Christ's church, the the true vine, the body of which he is the head. He uses lots of metaphors and analogies, especially in the Gospel of John. But, But Jesus is not indifferent toward his church. Jesus has a pretty high view toward his church and his church is being connected to him. And when we don't take vows to a particular church, we are also by definition, not uniting ourselves by vows to that, whatever that is, whatever that thing Christ church is that we'll talk about in a minute. We're not doing that. If you write it down on paper, cohabitation, living together without being married, Write that down and write marriage down. On paper, they shouldn't be very different, should they? I mean, really, if you make that list, you're like, what do we get out of that? We can split finances, we get cheaper living expenses, we get perks and benefits, we get, right? It shouldn't be that different. But you know it is different. You know it is. Everyone knows it is. People who are cohabitating know it is because you hear them talk about it. They have to defend it (laughs) because the default is this should be accompanied by the institution of marriage. And if you're going to opt out of that, you're on your back foot. You're on the defensive. But in the church, the mentality is kind of flipped. (laughs) It's exactly the same scenario. If I write down on paper the benefits of being a church member and the benefits of being a regular attender on paper, they're not going to look all that different, are they? But they are. They are. It's a categorically different thing. There are blessings within the church. Hebrews 6 lists out these blessings. Now it's doing it in in an unfortunate context of someone rejecting and turning away from those blessings. Tasting of the heavenly gift, right? Like it uses this profound language of what it means to be a part of the church. There's something very real there. The other thing you get beyond that connectedness of vows is you get intentional shepherding. Now, I hope we all have had and have other people outside of our church who speak into our lives, who speak truth, who speak scripture, who encourage us, who challenge us. We all need mentors and role models. We we need people like that outside of the church that speak into our lives. And within our families, we should have people like that who graciously give advice from time to time, along with hopefully a good mix of encouragement. I'm not taking away from any of that, but I do want to tell you something different in addition to it. Nowhere in scripture does it say that any of those people will stand before God and give an account to him for the way your soul was shepherded. It doesn't say that. Of whom does scripture say such a thing? Elders in the church. Elders in the church 
will stand before God and give an account for how your souls were shepherded. Don't you think there's some there there? (laughs) Don't you think there is something there? Positive and negative discipline. The good kind of accountability, the kind of accountability that wants to see you thrive rather than wants to see you punished. You understand that difference? That's what elders in the church are supposed to be. They're coming alongside you in life and they are pleading with you and they are cheering you on toward godliness. And we're doing it as men who will stand before God and give an account for every single one of you. We're all prone to wander. I said it in the prayer when we started this morning. If you don't think you're prone to wander, I don't think you've been a Christian long enough. <laughs> like, prone to wander, big picture. There, there are random Tuesday mornings where I just say, you know what? I'm done. I'm, I'm going to Mexico. I'm taking my $27 in my bank account. And I'm, I'm going to see how long I can live on the beach. Responsibilities. Bah. <laughs> That's pretty big wandering that, God willing, I will never actually live out. But there's also small wanderings that happen every single day. There are moments where we choose to sin rather than choose not to sin, and we know exactly what we're doing. I know what God said's best for me, but I got this serpent over here saying that I could do this other thing and it'll be fine. I choose serpent. <laughs> That's really what we're doing. It's these little prone wanderings. So being in the context of vows, being in the context of elders in a church who can come alongside you and cheer for you and encourage you. And yes, sometimes teach you. Sometimes show you something from the scriptures that you might not have seen or you might not be thinking about. That's what Austin's doing from the pulpit. Why do we preach through books of the Bible? Because we believe the Holy Spirit is a really, really good editor of scripture. And that if he'll preach through the Bible, We'll get a very balanced diet of, po- of positive and negative discipline, of training and of reproof. We'll get a very balanced diet over the life of this church, over all sorts of issues, every area of life, because the Holy Spirit's a really good editor. So we're all prone to wander, and we need this in our lives through church membership. And then the other one that I need to say is... Um, Many of the cases I've encountered where somebody was in that second category, not joining a church on purpose because they didn't want accountability. Many of the cases that I've experienced pastorally, small sample size, it was the father, it was the head of the household avoiding that accountability and avoiding church membership, and his wife and children desperately needed it. Part of what a session does and part of what God protects through church membership is the whole family, is the ability of a pastor and elders to come alongside a wife, to come alongside a child, and to have enough of a relationship and a life built up with them that every now and then, I know this will be shocking to every man in the room, but every now and then, dad is the problem. And somebody needs to come alongside dad and say, you are the problem. And, and through church membership and families of church membership, God has created an environment where that can happen naturally and regularly. And again, by people who want to see you built up and not punished. 
Nothing about life in the church is about punishing. It's about building up toward growth in Christ. For widows, for single moms, the church provide, church membership provides a legitimate, meaningful, accountability-based connection wherein there is safety. Safety for the one who needs help and safety for the ones who are providing help. And so God structured this, surprise, surprise, in a way that does all sorts of good things that we might not think about if we were just writing down on paper, what's the difference between being a regular attender and a member? Whether or not membership makes sense depends on two things then. The first is what do you believe Christ established when he said, I will build my church? What do you believe about how God acts when he says he acts covenantally? I'll more on that in a moment. That's where we'll finish today is what is the church. But the second factor, if it makes sense to join a church, really depends on you and what you're after. If you think Christianity is a private faith, if your goal is to be left alone, you should not join Christ church because no elders that are leading Christ church the way he's commanded should leave you alone. They shouldn't be leaving each other alone. And we're not. You should see the voicemails I get from these guys. Boy, apparently I am the problem. <laughs> Many times I am the problem. If our goal is to grow in Christ likeness, grow in wisdom, Grow in grace, just as he did. Grow in Christ-likeness, attaining in his coming the perfection, the glorious perfection of the faith. And our goal is, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to be like Christ. And I know I can't be fully like Christ until he comes, but I, by the power of Christ, want to walk as closely with him as I can until I get there. Every day, more and more closely. If that's your goal then you are really missing out on the absolute best help you can have in that endeavor if you don't join a church. You're missing out on the best thing God offered people who want to be like Jesus is his church. So questions about that, and then let's talk about what the church is. But I know that's a lot. But I want to make the defense, why join any church before we talk about this church? And I want to sip coffee. Is that your experience that those of you who have been members of a faithful church, whether it's this one or another one, isn't your experience that there's more there than you could just capture in a bullet list of church membership, that there is some deeper experiential distinction? It's family. That's what Jesus said. These are my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. I think we're all looking for that sense of being known and belonging in a world that is, has less and less opportunity for that. Yeah. Yep. When I've had conversations with people who are veterans and why I think it's one of the things that is important because of personal tragedy that we've gone through is you don't know what lies in your future and we wouldn't have survived without a church. 
through. Yeah. And you, I wanted that safety net of if we fall, we need people to help catch us. And you don't, your, your brothers and sisters in the church don't help you in those moments because they're obligated to by church membership. That's a have to. Your brothers and sisters in Christ help you in those moments because through the bonds that you've shared together in the life of the church, you've built a kind of closeness that they see it as a get to. I hate that this happened. And what a privilege that God has me here to help a brother and sister in this time of need. That, that You see the get to have to difference? And you'll hear me go back to that a lot in this class, because if there is any phrase that we want to capture the ethos of this church, it is that distinction. We do have an obligation before God to be keepers of the law, because that's how God says we love him. You love me, keep my commandments. As a practical matter, living day in and day out, that type of fuel isn't going to get you there. The have-to fuel is not going to get you there. The get-to fuel, living this way, draws me closer and closer to Christ and all of his benefits. And comfort when nothing else will comfort me. And hope when my circumstances look impossible. That's the get-to <laughs> And that, by the Spirit, will get you there. It, it, will, it will get you closer and closer to Christ until it's coming. All right, real quick, let's talk about the establishment of the church. Um, Scott, you've got, you've, you look like a Bible-reading man. Just looking for who has one in their lap so I can go fast. <laughs> looks like you got one there. That. That. I'm going to read some scriptures real quick. Upon what did Christ establish his church? The rock? What's specifically about the rock in the context? It's the profession of Peter. Peter, in this moment, is going to represent the disciples. A rather ragtag group of people from diverse backgrounds that Christ has assembled together. He brought the raw materials. And then he says, I'm going to do something with these raw materials. And you look at these raw materials, chapter after chapter, and you're like, Jesus, you ain't doing much with this. And then Peter, on behalf of all the disciples, says something, brings one raw material to the table that causes Christ to say, that's it. That is what I will build this whole thing upon. Who's got Matthew 16, 13 through 20? Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So these disciples, through Peter's confession, see the establishment of a community around that profession, and that community includes some kind of authority. You hear that binding and loosing and keys? It's an authority. There's some kind of necessary authority over that community. In Matthew 18, and, and let me just say, in Matthew 16, the church as an institution is brought into being by Christ. But that doesn't tell us everything we need to know about the church. We need more of the New Testament. We need scripture to interpret scripture to understand all the in and outs of what it means to be the church and what the church is going to look like. So then you get to Matthew 18. Who's got Matthew 18, 15 through 20? Um, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Thank you. You hear that same language tying it back to Matthew 16, that there's an authority and a binding and a loosing here. And that now we hear it connected to, oh, it's sin of people who are a part of that community. And when people in that community sin, they should acknowledge their sin, confess and repent of it, and then good, you've won your brother. But what if they don't? Well, you try to sort it out, and if you can't sort it out, you take it to the church, and suddenly the church as this institution is this final authority over what? Over whether or not the person is a believer. The church says to the person who will not repent, and this is really critical, the church does not say to the sinner, Christians don't sin. You're not a Christian. That's not what happens in that passage. The church says to the unrepentant, there was a process, there was time, there were opportunities. The church says to the unrepentant, oh, you're not a Christian because Christians repent. Now, why does the church say that? To call them to repentance, not to punish, not to, to call them to repentance. This is ultimate stakes here. So this church has this authority, this binding and this loosing. Also, by the way, I don't know about y'all, but growing up, I never imagined for two seconds that the context of the verse of where two or more are gathered in my name was church discipline. But that is exactly the context in which that verse appears in scripture. And it's very interesting how we got from there. Two or more are required in God's name 
to make these sorts of judgments to the idea of popes, but I digress. We'll come back to that in a few weeks. And did you hear in that verse too? It's just too much good there. Jesus' promise of the perseverance of the church. He doesn't say, it's going to be really scary, you guys, and hell is almost going to overtake you, but you'll survive. He says the gates of hell can't withstand the advance of the church. There is no one, no matter how spiritually and deeply committed to hell they are at this very moment, there is no one that the church of Jesus Christ cannot go in by the power of Christ and snatch out of hell and into Christ's glorious salvation. Nobody is too far gone. Nobody is too far gone. Well, they're behind the gates of hell and knock them down. Ha, huh, I love it. That's the power of the church moving forward. So this class is about what it means to join a church, but specifically to join this church, Covenant of Grace. So I'm going to give you this so you know where we're headed. Nick, will you be a distributor? Because my dry hands will give out eight at a time. We're going to talk about what it means to be Christian. We're going to talk about what it means to be Protestant. Covenant of Grace is a Christian church. Did you know that? I hope so. Covenant of Grace is a Protestant church. We're going to talk about what that means. Covenant of Grace is a Reformed church. We're going to talk about what that means. Covenant of Grace is a Presbyterian church. We're going to talk about what that means. I think especially for those of us who did not grow up Presbyterian, we tend to think that Reformed and Presbyterian are talking about the same things, or at least very similar things. Reformed is, a, is doctrinal. Presbyterian is a form of government. How is the church organized and ruled? And so we'll talk about those things as well. Um, thank you. So we'll talk about what we believe in these categories. We'll talk about vows. On the back of this page are the vows you took when you joined or the vows you would take when you joined. We're going to talk about those vows and their significance and what they mean. But Christianity is a faith of facts. I believe dot, dot, dot. So we're going to talk about everything that comes after the dot, dot, dot. We're going to talk about what we believe in order to be a Christian, Protestant, Reformed, Presbyterian church. So where we'll start next week is where do our facts come from? Before we can get into the specific facts that we believe, we first have to establish the ultimate authority for those facts. Where do we get the information that we are then affirming as true. And if there is any one doctrine, the abandonment of which I think has crippled the church over the last 50 years, it's the sufficiency of scripture. I think pulpits and Sunday school podiums have failed for decades to persuade Christians from scripture that scripture is sufficient. And that's why they sell so many Christian books. It's not because people want to grow more deeply into Scripture. It's because they don't think Scripture is sufficient. That's why there's so much debate over we need to have open hearts and open minds and open doors and you believe so much that your brains fall out your ears because we think Scripture isn't clear or that it doesn't speak to all the things that it speaks to. So next week we'll start there.